0: Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Today we're looking at advances in brain imaging. What kind of health problems is the technology helping to solve and how close are we to being able to read minds? Darren Dodd discusses the latest research with Claire Elwell, a professor of medical physics at University College in London, and FT science editor Clive Cookson.
1: Claire, you've been an expert in brain imaging for 25 years plus. Let's just start with the very basics. What do we mean by the different types of imaging?
0: So when we think about brain imaging, I think it's important to differentiate between looking at the structure of the brain, so almost getting a photograph of the brain, and understanding the function of the brain. So what are the processes that are going on inside our brain? So if you want a really good image of the structure of your brain, Things like MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, will give you great resolution images. But more and more, we're moving into imaging technologies that really help us understand the function of the brain. So for those, we would include EEG, optical imaging, and a technology I wrote about recently, which is MEG. So there's a range of different imaging technologies available now to suit particular populations and patient groups and particular applications of why we want to understand the brain.
1: Let's just cut through some acronyms briefly, so PET, SCAN and MEG, explain what those are.
0: PET is positron emission tomography. So this is where you inject a radioisotope, so a radioactive material, into your bloodstream. And we look at how that radioactive material is emitting radioactivity from your brain. And that allows us to localise particular regions of your brain and, interestingly, particular processes in your brain. So how are you producing energy in different parts of your brain? So it's quite a chemical type of imaging EEG is electroencephalography. What that means is that we're measuring the electrical signals coming from your brain. So when your nerve cells fire, it produces a small electrical signal and we can pick that up with probes that we put on the outside of your scalp.
2: They vary a lot, don't they, Claire, how invasive they are. Some of them, like PET, you put a radioactive isotope into your brain. Now, I know it's not going to do much radiation damage, but you'd rather not unless you have to. And there are various x-ray based techniques, like CAT, where, again, they try to minimise the dose. But those are not without risk, whereas the others you've been talking about, EEG and MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, can do no conceivable harm. Is that uh, a fair distinction? I
0: think that's a really good distinction, particularly when we're thinking about the use of radioactive materials, which we really want to minimise. And it, means that there are whole population groups that you can't image. So there's no way that we want to put radioactive material into young babies. But there are now other brain imaging technologies that give us access to looking at baby brains in a whole new way. And that's part of the technology that I've been developing that's changing. The way I like to think of it is we're changing how, when and where we can image the brain.
1: You've been writing for us about some of these new developments. Tell us about what's going on at the moment in the world of science.
0: So I think that the big push forward now is harnessing technology. So there's a lot of technology that's being developed for telecommunications industry, for example, that we can use in brain imaging. So my work has been in developing optical brain imaging. And this is a very safe and a very simple way of literally shining light on the brain. We shine very low power light into the brain and we look at oxygen distribution within the brain. And we can use this technology literally from the day that a baby is born to start understanding that baby's brain function and structure. And this has only been made possible because the types of optical sources that are now available and the types of optical detectors. So the type of optical detectors we use are not dissimilar to those that are in your camera phone. So it's harnessing technology that's not necessarily built for imaging purposes, but that can really enable a whole new level of brain imaging.
2: How do you get the light through the skull, to put a very simple question?
0: So that's a good question, Clive. If I'm looking at you now, I can tell that you look relatively healthy. Thank now, you. one of the reasons I can tell that is because you're a nice pink colour, particularly around your lips, it's a nice healthy colour. And that's because the light's shining on your face and... Almost all of that light's being absorbed apart from the red light that's coming back to my eye. And that's telling me how much oxygen is in your blood. Now, the question you've asked me is how do I get that light into your brain? So, instead of using visible light, I use near infrared light. So, that's the type of light that might come out of your TV remote control. It's invisible light. And it just so happens that your skull is transparent to near infrared light. So, we can pass that light through your skull completely safely and then look at the colour of the blood inside your brain and how much oxygen is in your brain. So, in the same way that I can see you looking well, because your face looks nice and pink, I can actually now look inside your brain and see what colour your brain is.
1: And what are some of the applications for this science?
0: So I think if we think about the technologies that are opening up when we can measure the brain, so I've spoken about how we can measure the brain literally from the day that a baby is born, we can actually measure the brain from before the baby is born, we can do imaging now of foetuses, so we can start to look very early on at whether there are any structural problems in the brain. But if we think about developmental disorders such as autism, optical brain imaging is now being used to look at babies who are at risk of autism as early as four months of age and to understand their brain function and then relate that to a possible diagnosis of autism at three years of age. But also at the other end of the lifespan... We all know that dementia is an increasing problem and so we need to understand the brain in terms of its deterioration, not just in terms of its maturation. And so thinking about brain imaging technologies that enable us to understand brain function in a population that may not be very tolerant of lying still in a scanner for a long time. So this has really pushed forward the advent of wearable brain imaging systems. So the idea that instead of you going into a brain imaging scanner, the scanner comes to you and it's made of a material and it's a technology that's very easy to tolerate potentially for quite long periods. And so I think it's opening up the ambition of how we understand the brain. It's allowing us to look at the brain in a much more naturalistic way. And also there's a very exciting new area of looking at people-to-people interaction. So we can have two people interacting and we can be imaging their brains simultaneously. And this will enable us to understand what type of synchrony happens in certain situations, maybe in conflict resolution, maybe in all sorts of mediation. How do we understand how brains are working in a much more naturalistic environment?
1: And obviously that's got big implications for global health issues.
0: Absolutely. So conventionally in global health populations, it's been very difficult to have access to brain imaging systems because typically they have been costly and technologically quite complex. But most recently, we've been able to transport our optical brain imaging technology out through Africa and actually perform the first brain imaging of infants in Africa. And this is an example of where understanding the brain in these populations can be very, very important. We know that one third of the world's children living in the poorest countries are not reaching their developmental potential. And that's because of impacts on their brain potentially due to malnutrition and poverty. So we need to understand brain development in these populations. So developing techniques that enable us to access them is critically important.
1: I think you were one of the first to actually undertake brain scans in Africa.
0: That's right. We had some funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and we had been performing brain imaging in infants for over 25 years in the UK. And with a relatively modest amount of funding, we basically packed up our brain imaging system, took its excess luggage on the plane with us to the Gambia, drove it on a Land Rover to the rural field site in the African bush, and literally within two hours of setting up our equipment, we had our first brain image. So I think that this is a good example of... If we understand what some of the challenges are, and this is always true in science, we need to define the question well, then that enables us to develop the technology to answer that question. Science always works best, I think, at this interface where there's a very good link between the question that you need to answer and the technological developments that will enable that.
2: And at the other extreme, talking of interfaces, a very first world possibility is to use brain imaging and brain computer interfaces to begin to try and find out what people are actually thinking. Now, there are ethical problems here, but there is certainly evidence that you can begin to deduce people's thoughts, at least their broad areas of thinking, through looking into their brain. Isn't that right?
0: Well, that's right. And I think that increasingly we're going to see the advent of systems that are trying to gauge sometimes people's moods, sometimes people's intentions. There's a lot of interest now in neuromarketing. So understanding what the drivers for behaviour are that may not always be evident, but that we can analyse from brain signals. And brain-computer interface, I think, is a very rapidly developing area. So this is where we use brain imaging and we extract the signals that we get from the brain, potentially to drive external devices. If we have a robotic arm, we could potentially extract the signals from the part of the brain that's used to moving our arm and use those signals to move the robotic arm. So I think there's challenges in terms of how we actually analyse that data. But I think as we go to more wearable brain imaging systems, the breadth of applications is really going to expand.
1: Yeah. Clearly there's the beneficial aspects like prosthetics, but should we be worried about the neuromarketing, as you say? It's very minority report ten. I- Yes, I think
0: most people would not be particularly happy to have thought that their minds could be read. (laughs) So I think that there are ethical concerns. And as scientists, we have to be very clear of the purpose of any research that we're doing. And we also have to be very clear how the data is going to be used. And so we're very familiar now with personal data when we can think of what our personal data is. But when we think about what our innermost thoughts are, that's probably the most personal data that we have. So I think, you know, it's right that we're bound by ethical considerations and certainly research governance about how data is used. That was Darren Dodd talking to Claire Elwell and Clive Cookson. We'll be back with more news later this week, but in the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our latest subscription offers at ft.com. offer